Good morning, church. My name is Tiffany, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from Exodus 24 to 6. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the reading of God's word. Oh, well, again, my name is Eugene. I'm a member of the staff here. Uh, I have the privilege of giving today's message, and we're going to be continuing on uh, in the series that we've entitled Imago Dei. The, the idea of if we're made in the image of God, what does that mean for us? Um, how does that change everyday life? And I would argue in the next past week and the next three weeks that we have, it changes everything. And to give a quick recap of last week, what we wanted to talk and really focus on is that if you're built and made in the image of God, every human being here, whether you believe in God or not, the belief is that you have dignity and you have purpose. That even before you have to prove anything, if God said, I'm making you in my image, even before you were born, that you have the purpose to bring God's glory to this earth and you have dignity as a human being. So the next couple of weeks, I want to parse that out. Well, what does that mean practically for us? And one of the first ways that we see this implicating us is this idea of idolatry, um, which we just read. We just read out of Exodus chapter um, 20, and the second commandment, you shall make no other God before me, and you shall make no created image, whether it's in the heavens, on this earth, or below. What does that mean for us? Um, I think the term idolatry, if you've been in the church circle around, it's been used a lot, you know, beware of idols, but it's never been parsed out well. And I guess to, to kind of give context for today, I want us to focus on, well, if we're made in the image of God, what does that have to say to the idols that exist in our hearts? In Ezekiel 14, what the writers, what Ezekiel tells us is that the idols are now implanted in our hearts. What are idols? What does that even mean for us today? Um, idols in the ancient Near East were physical statues or carved images built to represent a god or goddess um, of a specific you know, region, or maybe it's a god of the specific area. And often when you hear that, and maybe if you, even if you read that, and we just read that together, you can be like, well, no one, no one does that anymore. Uh, no one worships animals no one worships any idols that that's not a concern for us we've moved on to that and i would argue this with the image behind me i don't i don't think much has changed right um maybe these aren't like physical images of of you know things that we worship but i don't think much is i mean the very fact i'm i don't want to get too political but i am getting political but the very fact that the two parties carry an animal representation show us that our idolistic tendencies have not change we yearn to worship always something before us and the, th the question then is this what happens if we're made in the image of god what happens when we do worship the idols implanted in our hearts maybe it's political maybe it's money maybe it's yourself maybe it's beauty what is taking place because if we if you look back to the text one thing that's very clear is god says i am jealous for you and at the end, he says, you shall not bow down to these idols or serve them, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. Why is he so jealous? I hope to parse that out for us. 
And the main thesis of today is this, that when we worship idols in our heart, we are inverting the image of God, which we are made in. We are inverting the image of God, which we are made in. What does that mean? Well, first is this, when we worship the idols of our hearts, we start to make God in our own image rather than being made in God's image. When we worship the idols of our heart, we begin to make God in our own image rather than being made in the image of God. You see, one of the ways idolatry works is that it flips the Imago Dei. How does that work? Um, in the ancient Near East, uh, there was a lot of gods and a lot of goddesses, a lot of idols and temples that you could visit. I would even hearken to it being like this. It was often like visiting a Whole Foods. Um, when you go to Whole Foods, it's great. Well, let's forget Whole Foods. That's kind of pricey. When you go to Costco, it's great. Because Costco has every, like, literally things you didn't even think you needed, it has. All in the beauty and comfort of one big location. You can get big carts. And this is the thing. When you walk into Costco, you can always pick that day what you want and what you don't want. Oh, today I really want hot links. I'm going to go find hot links. Right? Oh, today I really want a good wine. I'm going to go, get, go find wine. And what, what the, the comparison is this. In ancient Near East, often the religions of the time worked the very same way. The idols of the time, there were different idols that helped you with different regions of your life. There was a god of rain for those who were concerned with farming. There was a god of war with those who were going to battle and in the military. There was a god of love. If you were like lovesick, you go to that. And basically what the, the system was, was you could visit the god or goddess of your need in the supermarket of choices. And this is the thing, when Israel exits out of Egypt, and Exodus is written out of Egypt, that tendency to worship multiple gods, the idea of polytheism, still carried with the people. They said, hey, we'll worship you, Yahweh. We'll worship you, God. That's cool. We, we like you. As long as I get to keep all the other gods and goddesses of my heart. And this is where the commandment comes. When God is very clear, you will not do that with me. You have to understand, I guess, to give a little bit more nerdy background, um, for Yahweh to come in the Old Testament time and say, I am the only God. I'm not the only God that you worship, but I am the only God that exists. That was uh, countercultural for the time. Because for, for much of that time, as you could choose all the gods and gods, but you, what Yahweh was saying is, I am the only God that exists. And that was hard for a lot of these Israelites to wrap our minds around. And I would argue this, it's still hard for us to do the same. We still worship what we want to worship. The reason that God is so adamant to not make idols, the first reason is this. Idol making makes you feel that you have control over the uncontrollable. It gives you security. When you choose what you get to worship at different times of need, you feel like deep down inside you are in control of your life. The whole idea of making an idol is you're making a physical representation of the supernatural. And oftentimes, for many ancient Near East, you could create little pocket idols that you could carry in your pocket. That if you weren't in the temple, you could bring it out and be like, oh, I need you, God of rain. What Yahweh is saying in this commandment is this, do not reduce me to only certain areas of your life, just like you do with the other gods. Let me go a little bit deeper. God in the Old Testament, when you think about it, how did God appear physically in form to his people? If you look throughout the whole Old Testament, God comes never in a solid physical form. When he first appears to Moses, he be, appears as a fire that is 
always burning. It has, basically what it was saying is when Moses approached God for the first time in the burning bush, and he, if you guys remember um, Prince of Egypt, I don't know if you guys remember that, uh, it's a great movie. The, the, the book's better. But anyways, when Moses touches the bush, he doesn't get burned. And the whole idea was God is a fire that does not need fuel. It needs no limitation. In other instances in the Old Testament, God comes as light and as wind. If you think about wind, it comes blowing whether we like it or not. It comes as it pleases. God in the Old Testament, even by the forms that he took, was showing us, I move freely whether you like it or not into your life sovereignly. You cannot control me. And this is the problem. When we make idols of our lives in any arena, we carry the temptation of deforming God into our own image. Because I would argue this, nothing has changed. We do the same thing. And I'm speaking mainly to those who say that I believe in God. We, you know, if you're here on Sunday, and this is, this is pretty packed. I don't know if it's a smaller venue, but this looks packed more than usual, right? Awesome. If we come on Sunday, what we're saying is, I worship you, God. And I'm saying this not as accusation, but more of confession. How many times do we come on Sunday and say, we worship you, and the next day, God has no control over our work. God has no control over our sexual ethics. God has no control over our family. Nothing has changed. We still do the same. We allow different idols. Maybe it's your political party. Maybe it's sexual temptation. Maybe it's money. Whatever idol it is, we still allow those to compete with God in our hearts. And what we're doing then is that we're forming God, even though we say we only believe in one God, when we still practice in idolatry, we're creating God in our own image. Um, Anne Lamont, she puts it really well. She writes this, um, you can safely assume <clears throat> you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Like, we do this all the time. When we idolize, maybe it's political ideologies, maybe it's vocation, whatever it may be. When we allow our God to form in our own image, we're making God in our own image rather than being made in the image of God. And this is the problem. If we're truly believing in Genesis 1.26 that all of us carry the image of God, what that means is we're designed to allow him to take control in every arena and corner of our life. I talked a little bit about this last week, but an image always is an image. The painting of the Mona Lisa never changes. No matter where it is, no matter who's looking at it, no matter what time of day it is, it always stays the same. What the painting of the Mona Lisa does is that it says, this is what Mona Lisa looks like. Even though Mona Lisa is not here, maybe she's not even real, but this is what she looks like no matter where the painting is at. That is what we're called to do. Does that make sense? then if we're called to be made in the image of God, no matter where we are, every corner of our life must bow down to God. To put it as a better example, um, <clears throat> you know, dating uh, is fun. It's really fun. Uh, because dating, your partner can only see parts of you. Like, you know, there's always that period where, like, you don't fart in front of your boyfriend or girlfriend, right? It's like, oh, like, do they not fart? Like, what's going on, right? There's always that period where like they always smell really nice when you see them like wow this person is really well shaven and like they take care of themselves there's always that period of dating when they like dress to the nines or it's like wow this guy's a hipster this girl is really fashionable but in marriage um things change right and, and i'm not i'm not bagging on marriage and, uh, at all but marriage it's very different marriage is fun but it's deeper than dating why because in marriage you cannot escape 
any part of your partner, you see all of them. You see how they sleep. You see how they eat. You see how they clean up. You also see how they don't clean up. And in that relationship, if you can get through that, there is a deeper intimacy that establishes. What God is saying is the same thing. Often we try and date God and at the same time have our dating apps open for other potential suitors. When God says we're made in the image of God, what God is asking us to do is, can you enter into a covenant relationship where I have control over every arena of your life? So this is the thing. Not only does idolatry form God in our own image, but it goes even deeper. You see, when, when we idolize other things in our lives, not only do we make God in our own image, but we suddenly become made in the image of the idol. When we, when we worship the idols of our hearts, not only do we make God in our own image, we all of a sudden take the form and shape of the idols that we worship. Um, I don't know how many of you guys know uh, Woody Allen, a famous actor and filmmaker, um, but if you know his personal life, it's, it's, a, it's a wild story. Um, he marries a famous actress named uh, Mia Farrow. They get married, they're around the same age, and all of a sudden it comes out a little bit later that he is now dating and in a sexual relationship with the stepdaughter, with Mia Farrow's daughter, who's 30 years younger. It's a very famous story, infamous story even. And there's a very famous interview when the interviewer goes up to Woody Allen and says, why, like, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of entering into a sexual relationship with your stepdaughter, who's 30 years younger than you? And Woody Allen famously put it this way, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. And I, man, I feel like, look, what he did was incredibly twisted, but that phrase captures the cultural moment of the West. The heart wants what it wants. See, the problem is your heart is always wanting to worship something. And the more that we've progressed, you know, and become more modern as people, the more the idols exist for you. Every time you open your phone, every time you open your Slack, every time you open your Gmail or, or whatever email app you use, the idols come rushing in and the heart will always want what it wants. But I'll take that even further. Not only does the heart want what it wants, the heart becomes what it wants. The heart is changed into what, it's, what it wants. The heart is formed into what it wants. To put it more biblically, we all become what we worship, whether for ruin or restoration. We all become what we worship, whether for ruin or restoration. You see, being made in the image of God means that our identity is rooted in reflection. Again, to think about the idea of the image, and I'm going to use that a lot throughout the next sermon series, but the idea of the images is this. Again, think about a painting. The painting only exists not out of itself, but out of a reflection. Does that make sense? Any painting is a reflection of what the artist wants to convey to the people. And in the same way, what that means for us in our soul is this. We are people that are very, very, very moldable. We're, very, we're, we're like a canvas that's waiting to be drawn on. That is who we are. And that contradicts often the narrative that you've been given your whole life. If you've grown up in the, you know, in the Western world, you've been told you are a rational human being. You are brain on a stick. You are brain on a stick, two sticks. You decide who you want to be. You're a rational human being. Let's see, like even your fashion. 
even the way that I dress, right? Like there's like, you know, I don't, I don't take too much like thought into what I wear, but there is like, oh, I want it to kind of reflect who I am. And then deep down inside, I think, oh, this, these choices that I've made, this, this jacket I bought off like whatever site, these shoes that I bought, oh, that's a reflection of who I am. That is a lie. You wanna know why? If I grew up in Korea 20 years ago, I would look very different. I'd have like a middle part, I had a perm in my head, uh, you know, in my, in my hair. I'd be wearing different shoes, I'd be, I'd be talking differently. Why is that? Because you are not just your convictions, you are the result of the environment that you've been placed in. The environment around you is always shaping who you are and your convictions. We're much more moldable than we think. I gave you more specific. Um, if you guys know me uh, in my music choices, like you would never think I listen to K-pop, right? And I kind of true. I don't understand Korean, even though I'm Korean. I can understand like 20%. I can speak back like 0.6%. That's the that's kind of my Korean uh, uh, capacity. Now, rationally, you would think if this dude listens to K-pop, he's not going to keep listening to K-pop because it doesn't make sense. And rationally, I agree. I think K-pop doesn't make sense, right? I think it's like it's kind of weird, honestly, to me. But recently, uh, my wife and my daughter and my son have been really listening to this band called New Jeans. I don't know if you guys know them. Yeah. Um, you know, when I watched them, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I don't know what's going on. Um, but they always play this every time we drive now, right? And I'm like, oh, like, why, why, why are we listening to this, right? But last night, you know what I was doing? I was looking up New Jeans dance choreography, right? And I'm just singing that song like, oh my, oh my. anyways, like it's like stuck in my head. And like, think about this, rationally that doesn't make sense. Like my favorite artist is Jermaine Cole, like he's a rapper. How is it that I'm liking K-pop? I don't even understand what they're saying, right? Why is it that all of a sudden I can't get that song out of my head? Why is it now secretly when I'm driving by myself to church, I listen to that, why is that? Because you are more moldable to the environment that's around you than you think. You're always being influenced by whatever you put yourself into. And what God is trying to tell you is this, idolatry, not only does it make God in our image, it also affects who you are. The heart becomes what it wants. We are formed into the image of the idols that we worship. Uh, let me put it, a smarter man puts it this way. Richard Lentz, who's a commentator of Exodus, he writes this. The great danger was that Israel would be led astray by their own desires. Those desires would eventually remake Israel in their own image, wherein their identity would mirror the carved images or idols that they had made. Israel would become like the gods they chase after, fragile, lifeless, and fleeting. In essence, the second command, which we just read, do not make any uh, made image in my, uh, you know, wherever you are, was intended to protect their and our identity as image bearers. Israel, like the rest of us, were tempted to define the meaning of life as internal to their own desires and perceptions. See, the reason God is so adamant, do not make idols in your hearts, is because you will become what you worship. You will become what your heart wants. To put it even a little bit deeper, um, when Moses hears these commandments from God from the Mount Sinai and he comes down, right after he comes down, what is the first thing that he sees? The first thing that he sees is all of his people worshiping an idol. They're worshiping the golden calf. Why? Because again, rationally, just let's take a big step back. Let's think about this. God just 
opened up the Red Sea and allowed Israel to escape as he crashed the oceans down on Pharaoh and his armies. God just put bread falling from the skies and said, here, I'm going to give you food. Rationally, the Israelites should be like, ah, we will worship you. But human beings are not rational beings. We're creatures of desire. The minute that Moses had left and they got scared, even though all that stuff had happened just days ago, they forgot. And they reverted back to all that they knew. They worshipped idols to find security again. So they worship this golden calf, and they're saying, please deliver us because Yahweh has left us. And Moses comes down, and Moses is pissed. Right? If you remember the Prince of Egypt, I, I'm going to use it a lot just to help you identify things. He comes, and he throws the tablets on the calf and destroys them. That's usually all you remember. But one thing that I forgot, and I didn't even notice, is this. There's an interesting part of this narrative. In Exodus 32.20, Moses comes down. He's pissed. He breaks the calf, and he makes Israel do this weird thing. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and uh, with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. First off, like, that's some health hazards going on, right? Like, I don't know why Moses would do that, but why is Moses doing that? Moses is trying to make the point that God is trying to make at Mount Sinai. The heart becomes what it wants. Again, Richard Lintz writes this, symbolically, the calf is to provide food for them, and now Moses requires the idol to make good on his promise. The people physically take the idol into themselves, and from this point forward in Israel's, in Israel's history, acts of rebellion are characterized by appeal to the calf's, the calf's attributes. A stiff neck, a hard heart, ears that cannot hear, and eyes that cannot see. Do you see what is happening? What Moses is trying to show his people is, whatever you worship, you become. If you remember, uh, if you know the Old Testament, after this happens, Israel is always characterized by almost being a dead statue. You have a stiff neck, a dead heart, eyes and ears that cannot see or hear. Um, Psalm, I, there's a lot of text for you, but I want to just kind of pound this point into your brains. Psalm 115, 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. The most key verse here. Those who make these idols become just like them. So do all who trust in them. You become what you worship. Now look, I wish I could get a little bit deeper into this. And if you want to know the effects of this, it's a great book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Read it, especially if you live here, read it. But let me give you a small glimpse. This is how it happens practically for us. When you worship the idols of your hearts, what is Moses, what is the psalmist, what is God telling us? The idols, when we become like them, what, what is an idol? It's, it's a stone image that looks like it's alive, but it's actually dead. Right? If you think about any image, like a statue, it looks like it's supposed to be living, but deep down inside, you know there's no life in it. That's what's happening to you when you worship the idols of your heart. You think you're alive. You think you have purpose. You think you have meaning. But deep down inside, and maybe you even know this too, you have nothing inside. You become blind to the deeper realities around you. You only see what's right in front of you. You have eyes, but you cannot see. You have ears, but you cannot hear. You're blind to human beings made in the image of God around you, and you're even blind to God himself. 
right, so going a little bit deeper, if you worship money, if finance, financial security is the idol that you worship, and this is the thing, I'm not saying to be, give everything away, I'm not saying to be reckless, but if that is the main idol that is placed in your heart, what happens? You become blind to the people around you. You know, it's really interesting to me, I'm not in tech, but being a pastor in tech, I find everything fascinating. And with the layoffs that are happening, you know, I'm sure some of us even here have been affected by that. What's interesting to me is this, the companies that are laying these people off by tens of thousands, they're earning record-breaking profits, right? Like Google is earning record-breaking profits, and yet they're laying off as many people as they can. Why so? Because when you worship money, human beings no longer are human beings. They're just a number item on a list. Uh, there's like a famous letter uh, that a Google investor writes to Sundar, the CEO, and all these layoffs are happening. He, he writes letters like, I am appalled by what is happening. And I'm like, oh, this guy gets it, right? They're human beings. It's like, I'm appalled that these layoffs are not even taking deeper cuts, right? Like, we need to cut more people. We need to cut salaries. And at the end, he says, we need to do all this so that our stock price increases. Sincerely, you know, whatever his name is, right? Or her, I don't, I don't know who it was. Maybe you're here, right? I'm not sure. Um, what is that person doing? That person, because they're so fixated in worshiping money and financial gain, they're becoming blind to the human beings that work under them. The same thing happens to you. When you worship financial security, the only thing you'll see is money. And if the only thing you see is money, are you actually alive? Or are you just trying to get through life? If you worship vocation, your work, what happens is you're blind to the people around you that matter. One of my um, friends who's in ministry uh, in San Jose, he's a pastor of a huge church, and he's noted how FaceTime is a blessing and a curse. Because he noted that in one month, because he's, you know, he's a popular speaker, he's been speaking at different conferences and churches, that he had seen his kids more on FaceTime than physically seeing them face to face. And he thought in the deep back of his mind, like, oh, I'm, 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 you know, I see them. Hey, what's up, kids? You see them on a screen. But he said, he said something profound to me. I see them, but I don't really see them. I think I'm seeing them because I'm worshiping this idol of making sure my name is known around everyone around me. I don't really even see the people that are most important to me right in front of me. If you worship prestige, People no longer are people, they just become objects to use, to pass, or to just worship so that you can get by. All this, and I could go on and on and on, but what I'm saying is this, whatever you worship, you become, and you become blind to the actual deeper realities around you that God has put in your life. How then can we reverse these effects of idolatry? By looking to the perfect image. You know, last week we talked about how Jesus is described as the perfect image of the invisible God. Now, let's get a little bit deeper into that. Again, I mentioned the Old Testament. God never comes in physical form. He's always a fire. He's always a wind. He's always there, but not really there. And he's doing that to show us, I am not something that you can control. And yet in the New Testament, everything changes. The word becomes flesh. God becomes man. God finally enters into a finite physical form that people can try and control, use, and abuse, and they do. And who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus proves the point that when he comes as a human being, 
that even if God tried to do that from the beginning, that we would try and take advantage of that. Because what do, what do the people around Jesus do? What do the disciples do? They're bickering. How can they get further with Jesus? How do the crowds uh, greet Jesus? They only greet him when he's needed, and when he's not, they cast him away to the cross. God takes human form in the New Testament, and we prove, man, if God did take physical form, we would just try and use and abuse him. But yet Jesus says, I come in this physical form knowing that I will be abused, so that what? In the Last Supper, what does he tell us? And we, we take communion once a month. Why do we do that? I've heard, I, you know, as a pastor, I've always, like, the, the funniest conversation I had is um, in my previous church, I remember one of our college students was like, so, like, when I take communion, am I, like, magically saved, right? And I'm like, mm, like, kind of. But the purpose is this. When Moses says, eat from the idol that you worship, why? Because you become what you worship. What does Jesus say at the Last Supper? Take from my body and eat. Drink from my blood that will be spilt so that my image can be now be formed in your heart. Do you see what is happening? Jesus is the perfect image that can reverse the idolatries of our heart. And this is the thing. Even though he comes in physical form, he sends. He, he goes away. And he says, even though I'm going to go away, I'm going to leave you with two things. The spirit to make, you, to make sure that I'm always with you. But second, I'm going to leave you the church, the gathered body of believers. And you have to understand this. Um, that was a very crazy idea. See, temples and religion of the ancient Near East, there was no community found in them. You would come, do your own business, and leave. But Jesus was one of the first ones to say, no, when you worship me, I'm different. You come together. And what Jesus is saying is this, when you worship in this church, you're able finally to reverse the effects of idolatry on your heart. How does that happen? And I'll end with this. Three, three simple applications for us. How can we reverse the idolatry is happening. How can we not make God in our image? How can we not become like the image of our idols? But how can we return to becoming the image of God? Three things. We worship. We worship and we slow down. We slow down and worship. What do I mean by that? Um, idols are slave masters. Uh, they demand you to live at a pace where you can barely remember what's important anymore. Think about that. Anything you worship makes you live at a pace that you cannot remember what's important. Think about your work. Just think about it. You're probably, I don't want to think about it. Why? There's always something to be done. Think about your Instagram, if you're really into it. Like, if you're honest, you, it's, it's a lot. Because you get all these notifications, all these temptations. You see, when we gather on Sunday, what? Like, I'm going to be honest. <clears throat> when we did Zoom worship, I was like, oh, this is horrible. But deep down inside, I like, this is amazing, right? You know how much football I watch during Zoom uh, season of worship? You know, how much football you've watched, right? Um, you know how nice it was to wake up and be like, oh, I can, just, I can just stay in bed, right? You know how nice it was when I preached? I could be like, oh, I can wear a shirt, a pan, but I can just wear sweats on the bottom. And it's great. I love Zoom worship. But what did it do to us? Um, it kept us from meeting here physically and embodied. And what it did is it kept you living at the pace the idols allow you to live. You're always doing something when you're away physically here. What happens when you're, hey, if you're on Zoom, no, you know, no accusations on you, right? But you should come out to you, right? But physically, if you're here, what's happening? You have to slow down. You have to sit down and act like you're listening to a sermon, right? You have to stand up and read and actually sing 
with your mouth. Why do we do these things? We're not like, you know, it's always, it's always interesting to me to like, if you're not a believer and you walk in, it's like, like, why is everyone doing karaoke? Like, why is there a TED talk happening? What's going on, right? We worship together on a Sunday, on a Sabbath to slow down to a pace where we can finally remember what is important. That you are saved by Christ and you were made in the image of God. When we come on Sundays, it's war. It allows you to finally slow down and think, what is actually going on? Because this is how idols work. They work you at a speed where you can't think for yourself. When you worship vocation, when you worship money, it's always X amount. And when you get the X amount, it's always, oh, wait, it's X, X amount. When you get that, it's X, X, X amount. But when you come gather on Sunday and you slow down, what does God tell you? He doesn't say get to here. He says, this is who I am, and I've come to meet you through Jesus. We gather on Sunday to slow down to reverse the effects of idolatry. Second, we gather on Sunday to worship, to confess and repent, to confess and repent. Why do we do that? Um, Idols demand absolute perfection from your life. Idols demand absolute perfection from your life. And what idols do is if there's any sign of weakness, if there's any sign of a blemish, if there's any sign of some sort of thing that's disgusting, the idols say, don't you show that to anyone. Don't show that even to yourself. And you see, what these idols do is they demand this perfection and you cover your weaknesses. And yet, when you look to the Ten Commandments, what is being done? Think about this. The the second commandment we just read, part of the Ten Commandments. When does God give the Ten Commandments? You would think God would be like, hey, Israel, you're in Egypt. You're you're stuck by Pharaoh. I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments. If you do these things well, then I'll free you. He doesn't do that. He frees his people, even though he knows there's nothing that they did to deserve it. And then he says, these are the things I want you to do to follow me. It's so different from the idols that we worship. God does not demand perfection, but he invites confession. Why does he do that? Because repentance kills idolatry. You know, uh, on our worship, we added this recently where we confess and repent. Why do we do that? It's to remind you that when you gather on Sunday, God does not demand perfection. That was already taken care of on the cross. And this is the thing. You might be confessing the same thing for 10 years. And you're like, what is going on? Why does God even want you to keep confessing? Sins that often feel like it's impossible to come over. Because God wants to remind you, it's not how much you change, but how much of yourself you bring to me. When you worship in confession and repentance, you reverse the effects of the idols that have on you. So we slow down worship, we confess and repent in worship, but lastly, and this will be an intro to the sermon next week, we worship in community. We worship in community. When we worship together on this Sunday, and it's not on Zoom, again, no shout, you know, it's cool if you're on Zoom, but if you're physically, look around you. There are people right next to you. You might not know them. You might you might know them. Why do we do that? Why do we worship together? We could go back to Zoom, right? Let's be honest. It's easier for all of us, right? We could go back to that. Why do we gather physically and body together? Because community destroys idolatry. Idols always force you to isolate yourself. Idols always force, why do they do that? So this is what I mean. If you, if you idolize beauty, you only get self-conceited because you're only worried about your own self-image. If you worship money, you're only concerned about what you got and not what others got. 
The reason idols do that is because when they isolate you, they can control you. When they isolate you, you think, unless this, this is the only thing I got. What community reminds you is, and this is the reason why God allows us to worship in community. Community allows us to be reminded that we are not alone and that we live for something far greater than our own selves. Think about this. When God comes to us and Jesus comes, he saves not you, but a people, a church. Because he wants to remind you, I didn't just come to save you. I came to save you amongst my people. And that's what you're a part of. We are made to be in relationship and community. And when we worship in that community together, we're reminded we do not need to worship these idols because we have Christ who saved all of us. So in conclusion, I would ask you this. Um, in your own life, I don't know what you're worshiping. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but you know. You exactly know what's going on. And, and I invite you with this time to do this. Look into your heart and really ask yourself, what has these idols honestly given me? If it's work, if it's money, if it's beauty, if it's respect, if it's prestige, I don't know what it is. It could be a lot of things. I have my own things too. But you never ask yourself, what is it actually giving you? And in comparison, what does Jesus offer for you freely? Because that's the way out. That's the way out to break our chains. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we're reminded that we're made in your image, uh, you tell us not to make anything, uh, to idolize, not to make anything in our hearts that, that could replace you. Uh, but Lord, as we are reminded so often with our sinful hearts, we always stray away. But as we look to Jesus, as we look to the perfect image given to us in bodily form, as we look to what he has done for our, our sake, allow us to fight these chains that we have placed on ourselves. Allow us to be free, to experience true freedom in worshiping who you are. So be with us and be with us even in response as we worship you and to be reminded of your goodness and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.